We're going to read from verse 10 in just a moment or two. So if you have a Bible, do open it to Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10. I want to just add my, my welcome as well. My name's Andrew. I'm also one of the pastors here. And it is such a pleasure to welcome you to, to Grace if you're new. And to, uh, it's our desire to, want to help you find a church family in the city. Um, and also recognize that many of you will be on a different place in terms of your spiritual journey. Some of you have been believers a long time. Others of you are totally unsure about Christianity. And uh, we love to help people where they're at. And we have different vehicles, ways in the church life to help you. So please do connect with us. Do fill in the card, as Jeremy mentioned, and leave us your details. I want to take you back into this extraordinary passage. It's a passage that's earned its place and its fame among Christians really since it was written um, because of the way in which it vividly portrays something of the reality of how we confront and uh, are engaged in day-to-day battles in the Christian life, the challenges that we face. And so I want to read to you this passage, and we'll pray, and then we're going to dig in. So Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Father, as we open up this letter once more, we ask, Lord, for your insight and the illumination that comes to our minds when the Holy Spirit's at work to give help to everyone here to see the way in which Christ is the answer and the way in which we can grow. Lord, let your love and the the sense and the fragrance of your presence be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, we began, I read the same passage to you last week, and we began to, to, to unpack it. And by way of context, I tried to remind you that the The Apostle Paul, who had founded so many churches in a completely pagan environment, including this particular church, carried with him a sense of deep concern that he describes as a kind of anxiety, daily anxiety for the churches that he had founded, because they were tiny pockets of believers in an entirely hostile world without his presence there to help them. And sometimes he was there for a short time, sometimes for a longer time, but either way, they were very vulnerable to persecution, to doubt, to ridicule, to all the kind of things that trip believers up. And he had no rapid means of communication. He couldn't dial in and find out what was going on in the church. He had to sit in his anxiety and worry for the churches at a distance, and it gave him one recourse. He could, he could pray. 
And we know that he, he talks often about his prayer life for the churches. But if you ask what is it that made him anxious, it, above all was the acute awareness that he possessed that to be a believer is to enter into a kind of spiritual war, that everything in this world is postured to destroy your faith, and not just your faith, but to destroy the faith of churches. And sometimes we see churches burgeoning and growing and expanding. Often we see the opposite taking place. There are powerful dynamics at work underneath all of that. And this is why I think as Paul's closing his letter, he ends on this powerful note of exhortation to jolt them awake to the realities that they would face so that they will live their their Christian lives and not fail, not give up, not crash out. Now, if you were to then think about what this this theme of spiritual warfare means, because he talks about how our battle is against the devil and against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. I was explaining to you last week that I don't think that he's thinking here about what we often associate with the supernatural and with dark spirits. In other words, the paranormal. And these things, although I think Paul encountered things that you might regard as the paranormal, and you see this in the book of Acts in particular, that there are strange happenings that take place, that isn't particularly what's on his mind at all. And I don't think that therefore he's, he's equipping people for anything other than just the kinds of normal experiences that you and I experience in day-to-day lives. Paul was interested in the battles that you and I face at the most intimate level of our hearts that really often present themselves as a why in the road, a fork in the road, an opportunity to live for Christ or to move away from Christ. And if you're anything like me, I know that that is a daily experience. So although he uses this high, dizzying language when he's describing this spiritual battle that swirls around you, Really, he's interested in the very personal, intimate, what you can think of pastoral issues that affect all churches and all Christians. And his call, his resounding call, because he keeps repeating it, is the charge to stand. You heard it there in the 11th verse. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13 Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. And then finally, stand therefore, he says, before he introduces the armor of God. Are you standing? Would you say that you have firm footing in your faith? Would you say that you are able to repel the things that would harm your spiritual walk and your intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you the picture of health as a believer? This is the question we need to be asking. Now, as we get into this, I want to make it clear that I think that this call to stand highlights the importance of the ordinary for the believer. And the reason why I say that is because I think we can overstate, we can overfixate at the extremes. We can be overly interested in the extremes of spiritual vitality and vigor and great exploits for Christ. And history is full of men and women who have done extraordinary things for Jesus. And Christ has the ability to raise up men and women to do those things even now. But the most of the spiritual life that you and I experience is not out there 
in the extraordinary. It's in the day-to-day battles that you face, that I face. And at the other extreme, we can be overly interested in the in the catastrophic failures that some Christians encounter in their lives, that they make terrible, terrible mistakes and potentially even abandon the faith. But this can cause us to overlook the ordinary daily ways in which we make small concessions that actually are contradictory to our faith. So although everything I have to say pertains to those outlier situations, the good ones and the bad ones, really you have to understand that what Paul's talking about here is nothing less than the ordinary experiences of your day-to-day battle if you're a follower of Jesus. And the desire in him, of course, is to help you win those battles. How are we called to wage war in the day-to-day realities of life? That's the question we're going to tackle. Now, I want to begin by helping you think about yourself. I think that the first thing that we have to do is begin with self-knowledge. And particularly, the first thing is that you must know your weaknesses and your specific vulnerabilities as a Christian, if indeed you are a Christian. I know that some of you aren't. And I don't want you to feel in any way that this isn't relevant to you. You must understand that the spiritual war does not begin when you become a follower of Jesus. It begins long before that. And so everything I'm saying applies to you. But knowing your weaknesses and vulnerabilities is the first thing, because each one of you has specific challenges that you face to derail or deform or cripple you spiritually. You can think of the the Greek myth of Achilles. You remember Achilles, from which we get the expression Achilles' heel, a point of weakness, The story goes that Achilles, in Greek myth, Achilles' mother, who was a kind of nymph or goddess, dipped him as a baby into the river Styx so that he was soaked from head to toe with the liquid of that river, and it gave him a kind of invulnerability to harm. But of course, there is one exception, and it was the point at which she grabbed his heel or held him by the heel as he hovered over the water. As he grows up to be a man and a warrior, and he's involved in the Trojan Wars, his death comes when an arrow is shot by his enemy Paris, and it hits him in the heel, his Achilles heel, his point of weakness. I think it's a valid image of the way in which all of us as believers can have our unique points of, of vulnerability and of weakness. And very often it's much easier for you to see those points in others than it is for you to see them in yourself or to be humble enough to acknowledge them. So think, of, for example, about one person who may have a profound sense of conviction and certainty with regard to the truth. They understand their doctrine. They know the Bible. But what is less apparent is that under the surface there is a persistent hidden struggle with particular sin, hidden sin. You wouldn't know it, but there's a point of weakness. Or another person who lives with a clear conscience before God. Paul said that about himself. He says, my conscience is clear. And it's not that he thought of himself as sinless, but he lived in constant state of repentance and knew that he wasn't under the power or in the bondage of any particular sin. He had a clear conscience. Maybe that's you. But you can have that, but at the same time, the hidden part, the secret part, is that you have a constant gnawing anxiety about your 
your security as a Christian, whether you're really saved. Many people live with that. It steals joy. Then there may be others who are deeply assured about your eternity. If I said to you, listen, are you confident that you belong to Jesus? You'll say to me without wavering, yes, I am. But your day-to-day life is afflicted by constant anxieties and fear and dread that undermines your joy in this life. And somehow these things can coexist, can't they, in our lives, these contradictions, because all of us have points of weakness. My point is this. You have to be aware, because I tell you that I think that the, the devil knows your weaknesses better than you do. I think, in a sense, we become his special interests of study and observation in order to know how to trip us up and how to derail us. And you have to therefore begin with an honest self-reflection if you want to grow as a Christian. You must begin with self-knowledge, with self-reflection. I know that there's a way in which that can become morbid in itself and we're overly preoccupied with ourselves. But alertness to our own weaknesses is the first thing here. What is it that hinders you? What is it that trips you up? Is it some particular temptation that seems to come repeatedly that you don't seem to be able to get victory over? Is it that you suffer with intrusive thoughts? That ideas suggest themselves to your mind or thoughts flash across your imagination and you know that they're inconsistent with who you are as a person So they feel to be intruding from outside, but they rob you of a sense of peace and and safety and security in your faith. They really do damage to you. Many people struggle with this. Maybe you're someone who lives under the heavy yoke of condemnation, that even though the gospel says that you're clean before your Savior, that he's forgiven you, that he's wiped away the sin, nevertheless, you feel burdened by the sense of shame and of guilt that lives in you and on you. And it steals your joy, and it weakens your faith, and it causes you to recoil from other believers, and it causes you to recoil from God himself. You can't be all that you're meant to be when you're weighed down like a crushing weight on your shoulders. Others of you, it may be that you have perpetual sense of dread and hopelessness and melancholy, That even if the scriptures are full of the promises of of God and of his love and care for you as his child, it seems that your gloomy outlook puts a shadow over everything that you do and experience in life. And there's a weak point there because it can be exploited by the enemy, can't it? And some of you have constant cynicism and doubt concerning your faith. You come to church, you see others worshipping raucously, as John mentioned earlier, And all you can think of is how they're faking it. Because the the cynical part of your brain just can't be switched off. Or your doubts about the reality of what you're experiencing or seeing. For some, this is a a plague and it never really feels like you're free of it. And others, it can be bitterness and judgment that people have wronged you. They've wronged you badly. No one's denying that. But it's poisoning your heart to this moment. The rancor, the... The, the unforgiveness. And of course, if you know your New Testament, you'll know that this is, a, this is a foothold for Satan in the life of a believer. 
And we could go on and we can list many more things, but I think these are some of the main, main things that we encounter when, in, in ourselves, but also when we're speaking to you as church members around what's going on in your lives. These are the kinds of things that people struggle with, the weaknesses. And as we, as we move on, I just want you to, to note a couple of things about your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities. One of them is that they may not be obviously spiritual matters to you. That you may think of your spirituality over here in a box, and the things that you struggle with in a day-to-day, you've detached from your spirituality. You've not seen the connection, but there is a connection. Think, for example, about physical conditions and sicknesses. I knew a lady once who'd had arthritis for, for, for many years and had then it become a um, painful condition that caused her to walk with a limp. And although she was a professing Christian, she was the most miserable person I'd ever known in my life. And I sympathize with her. I understand how chronic pain must be utterly crippling. And many of us will go through seasons of sickness and physical ailments like this. But please don't miss the fact that this, that isn't detached from your spirituality. It can have a profound impact upon it. Read the book of Job. When Satan wants to cause Job to stumble and curse God, what does he do? He afflicts him physically with loss, with grief, and ultimately with sickness and with boils and horrible stuff that happens to him. The same is true, by the way, of mental health issues. I think that the more aware we are of these things and the more they're in the conversation in the public arena, that there's been some good that's come with that. But one of the negative things is that it's been almost entirely medicalized, turned into these conditions that are detached from the normality of life, your relationships and your, your well-being and, your, and all these things, but especially from your spirituality. Now, there may have been a day and an age in which believers only viewed these things through a spiritual lens. But we've surely overcorrected if we only view these things as a problem of biology and genetics or circumstances or whatever it is. And of course, you are an integrated being. Everything in your life is connected to everything else. So what's happening in your mind or what's happening in your body or what's happening in your job or what's happening anywhere in your life is affecting you spiritually. It is. So what suffering, what pain, what affliction are you going through? Brother, sister, that is having an effect on your spirit. Another thing you've got to note about this is that these weaknesses will change depending on your age and the seasons that you go through in life. You can see this in Scripture. I love the Bible for many reasons, but one of the things I find most encouraging about Scripture is that you will find it very hard to find a character who isn't described with all their flaws, even the greatest heroes. One of the most head and shoulders heroes in the Old Testament is King David. And when we meet King David as a young man, he's a man without guile. He has a pure heart. He loves his Lord. He's offering his Lord everything. He wants to worship God. He wants to dwell in God's sanctuary. He wants to sing praises. He has such a pure devotion to Jesus, or to, to the Father, I should say. I think he has glimpses of Christ, by the way, in the Psalms, but he came a long time before Jesus, so it's a bit of a misspeak there. But anyway, David is devoted. And what do we discover later on? That when he's an aging king, that's when he gives way to sexual sin. That's strange because you tend to think of that as a young man's problem. 
But David goes from health to sickness spiritually through the seasons of life. It's fascinating. The same sort of thing happens on a much shorter, shorter scale with a hero of the New Testament who's the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter is the de facto leader of the Twelve. I think he's the guy who really stands out, who speaks up, who's boldest and most forthright in his convictions. And when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He's the one who speaks up and says, you are the Christ. And then not long after that, when Christ is on trial in the middle of the night, the small hours of the morning, in the high priest's home, and Peter's furtively glancing through windows and through doors to try and desperately know what's going on, but warming himself in the courtyard. And he's asked, he's questioned, are you with Jesus? You're one of them, aren't you? He denies it, and he denies it three times. How does someone go from robust, deep faith conviction and confession of Christ to outright denial? Seasons of life happen to you, friends. Events happen to you. Sometimes these will be negative things. You'll go through suffering. You'll go through loss. You'll go through heartbreak. You'll go through rejection. you go through sickness. And it will do things to you. We hope to God it will strengthen your faith. But sometimes it, the opposite happens when we react wrongly. But also, don't miss the fact that sometimes it's the good things in life that undermine our faith. It's when you're most comfortable it's when life is most happy that then you stop praying and you forget God. That seems to me to be what's going on in David's life. He's an aging king, sat on his throne. Everything is good for him. Ah, but then that's when he's exploited by Satan. Brother, sister, you have to know your weakness. And there's no shame in admitting that you have weaknesses. I know I do. It's a daily, daily struggle for me to wrestle with myself. And therefore, engaging in spiritual warfare is not about bizarre practices and spiritual routines and mystical things that Christians can engage in. It's, it's the afflictions and the challenges that you and I face on a day-to-day -day basis. What are yours? What is it that could derail you? How does Satan want to probe and prod and, and hurt and harm you? Friend, admit it to yourself to begin with. Now, this brings me to the second thing. If knowing your weaknesses is the first point here, you must then know your armor and the weapons that Paul describes here in this passage. And we saw them here. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He's clearly painting an image of a Roman legionary, isn't he? Now, what do these things symbolize? What do they mean? This is the question we need to, to understand here. What are the weapons? What is the armor that God offers you when you're a follower of Christ? I think this could easily be misread and misunderstood. I think it's possible to think that what Paul's talking about here are spiritual practices that the Christian should engage in, like things like prayer, worship, the study of Scripture, evangelism. All those things are necessary, and I don't want to 
take away from that remotely. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, I don't think. Not at all. And I also think that we, we, we go wrong here when we, you know, I think this was my understanding as a younger man. And uh, that I read this passage and thought that, that I was meant to somehow pray myself into this imaginary state of having armor on me. Which sounds really strange, doesn't it? But I didn't know how to, to treat this passage. It says, take up the armor of God. So I'd, I'd kneel beside my bed in prayer and I'd say, Lord, help me to put on the helmet today. Sort of thinking, feeling a bit silly, putting on my shoes, you know. Is it only me? Has anyone else ever done this? I just thought, you know, I need to pray this into reality, whatever it means, because I don't really understand what it means. Now, I just want to do away with the strangeness of all that and help you to understand what I think Paul is talking about here. Is that each of these elements of armor and weaponry are ways of speaking about the gospel that we confess and believe as Christians. The truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, the Son of God. His atoning death for us upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. His resurrection and triumph over death. And the fact that when you have faith in him and trust in him, you become part of his family. You're justified, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're adopted, and your future with him is eternal, eternally secure. That's the gospel in a nutshell, friends. And what Paul's talking about here is understanding how the gospel relates to every problem you face as a Christian. Now just think about the armor with me for a moment before we unpack this further. He says, first of all, to fasten on the belt of truth. The, the image here is of the garments that were worn in the ancient world, which were typically flowing garments that would impede your movement if you were engaged in any physical activity. So they had this word that sometimes is translated, gird up your loins. It meant gather up your robes or your tunic and tie a sash or a belt around you so that everything is kinched and in place so that you can go about your work or you can go about your, your battle if you're a soldier. Put the belt on. And I think it speaks of the very first thing that characterizes a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who has encountered and come to believe truth. That anything else, if we take everything else to one side for a moment, the most fundamental thing about you if you're a follower of Jesus is that you have confessed that this is true. And that if everything in your life was stripped away, this would be the one thing that remains. This, this truth surrounds you. You have this encounter with truth. I love how Peter describes this or articulates this. The end of John chapter 6, it's an incredible chapter, but it, tell, it shows you the fickleness of the crowds. Thousands of people gather around Jesus, he, and he, feeds, he's, he he's preaches to them, and uh, they're fended by him, and they flee, they scatter, they run away. It's a familiar experience for me as a preacher, I'll tell you that. And they run away, and, he, and they abandon him, and he, he turns to the 12, who are the only ones remaining with him, and he says... And he asked them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter's answer is this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's saying, listen, come what may, this is the only thing we're really sure of. And we also looked elsewhere. And where else are we going to find anyone like you, Jesus? So the first thing that has to be true of you as a Christian is you feel like you're, you're prepared for action because you know the truth. 
You may have all kinds of other problems going swirling around in your life, but this is your bedrock. This is your touchstone. This is the first thing. The belt is on, and you know the truth about Jesus. Then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was um, obviously a piece of armor that would protect the torso. Sometimes it was a one piece on the front, sometimes the front and the back. Because you were most vulnerable as a soldier in the ancient world with blows coming from javelins and arrows and swords and maces and axes. You were most vulnerable in your torso. Because a, a blow to the liver or a blow through the lungs or to the heart would, would be fatal without a doubt. So these men, they wore them into battle. And Paul's saying, he's, he talks about the breastplate as the breastplate of righteousness because he's speaking not here about your righteousness, your ability to live a good and godly life. Because if that was your protection, you'd be dead today. Who of us can live before a holy God? He sees our hearts, friends. He knows you. He knows what you've done. If that's your hope, you're dead. That is not the Christian's hope. The Christian doesn't claim to be a good person. The Christian understands that there is only one who has lived a righteous life, Jesus Christ. And that faith in him justifies you. Which means to say that God gives you the righteousness of Christ as your own. So that you stand before him with the holiness of his own son. And friend, this makes you invulnerable. Eternally invulnerable. To accusation, to judgment. That's the privilege of the Christian. Which means that when you wake up and you feel heavy. And you feel like Satan's getting the upper hand on you. Because he's accusing you and reminding you of the things you've said, done and thought. The breastplate is there to say, no, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The blows can rain down on me. I'm safe. I know the truth. I'm righteous. And I don't, you don't say that arrogantly as a Christian because it's received. It's, it's a gift to you. Then he talks about the shoes of the readiness of the gospel. The hobnail boots that the Roman legionary would wear into battle to give him stable footing. And Paul talks about this as the, the readiness of the gospel of peace because he's already talked in this letter about the peace that comes to us through the gospel. He's talked about it as a peace that's, that's characterized by reconciliation with God. You don't feel like you're under the Father's displeasure anymore. You've been reconciled to the Father. That's what it means to be a believer. And not only have you been reconciled with him, so you have peace with God, you also have peace with others, Paul tells us. And I'd add to that, you also have peace with yourself. That you can be at rest in the grace that's been given to you through Christ. You have peace for the first time in your life. What does peace do? Peace settles you. That whereas you've been anxious and flighty and full of searching and seeking a restlessness peace roots you to the spot this is the image of the boots it's a gift that comes to you through Christ you know the truth 
You've been gifted righteousness, and you have peace in the inner part of your life. So that even, of course, you're going to go through all kinds of stuff, and your life is going to be surrounded by chaos at certain moments. The inner peace cannot be taken away when you cling to Christ. He talks about the shield of faith by which you extinguish the darts of the evil one. The Roman soldiers carried large rectangular shields that were literally called doors. That was the word that they gave for them because they were the size of a door and protect you from head to toe. And they'd soak them in water sometimes before battle because of the leather covering would soak in the water, which meant that as, as burning arrows were shot at them, the arrows would, become extinct, would be extinguished by the effect of hitting the wet shield. Now, what Paul says here is that we should take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And the way I understand this is the way that faith overcomes temptation for the Christian. Satan wants to fire temptations at you, and he will, he will bombard you with them every day for the rest of your life. How does a Christian overcome temptation? And the simple answer is, well, trusting in something better. I love how this is described in Hebrews 11. There we encounter Moses. He's talking to us about Moses. Moses, this guy who grew up with um, dizzying levels of privilege within the palace of Pharaoh. So that every pleasure imaginable was at his disposal because he was a prince. And what do young men do when they have pleasures at their disposal? Well, typically they indulge to the maximum. But we're told that Moses was different. It says, when he'd grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, he, he made a calculation as he looked at life before God. He thought, I can stay in Egypt and have every pleasure that is available to a prince in the, in the kingdom. Temporary pleasure. Or I can suffer in this life by embracing the reproach of Christ. The agonies and the sufferings that belong to a life of self-denial in order to embrace Christ. Why? Not because I like suffering and pain, but because he promises me something better than the temporary fleeting pleasures of sin. And you and I know exactly what that is about. You know what it's like when you give way to your desires. They laugh at you. They tell you you're a fool. You shouldn't have believed the lies in the first place. But then you believe them again the next time. And the only way that a Christian can overcome the lies that perpetually are thrown at us, the darts, these flaming darts, is by faith. And faith is essentially saying, I believe in the better promises that are mine in Christ. Christ has something better. And believing in the promises that are available through the gospel makes you lie resistant. It's like the experience you have when you're walking down um, a high street these days. You know how bakeries, they, they, they rig up there ventilation systems to pipe the air directly from the oven out into the street so that as you're walking past, the smell of pasties or croissants or whatever it is just fills your nose and makes you want to turn and purchase and eat and regret. 
how do you become resistant to those smells? Well, you eat beforehand. That's the only way, right? When your appetites are satiated, suddenly the smells no longer have a power on you. And the Christian is someone who is satiated in Christ and believes and clings to the promises of Christ and knows that, as James puts it, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. That every good thing in this world is a gift from the Father and the lies are that the good things come from, away from him, from other sources. No, it's a lie. They're just things designed to kill you and hurt you. The Christian is someone who knows that. And knows that what God offers me is, more, is better, more wholesome, more lasting. That's the shield of faith, friends. The helmet of salvation. A helmet that the Romans wore was partly for protection, of course. You know, a, a blow from a mace or an axe would quickly split your head in two. And so the helmet was quite useful. But more than that, it was also for decoration. It had the plume or the crest that ran down the top of it. So there was a certain dignity in being recognized as a Roman soldier. You stood out. And this is the dignity that is ours in Christ, friends. Paul talks about this. I love this verse. In, he, in Galatians chapter 6, he says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying that I walk through life with a, a boast that allows me to have a certain detachment from the cares of this life and what people think about me from the temptations that are thrown on me because I have this dignity that I boast in the cross, that I, I love and trust in and believe in a Savior who's better. That's the dignity that, that you have when you have the helmet of salvation on you. And it's a pride that's not the ugly type of pride. It's a pride in Christ. He is better. And finally, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, the short sword, the stabbing sword that was used by these legionaries. Your confession of the truth of the gospel is your secure weapon in this war. Now, the image then that's being portrayed here as we think about this legionary, the Christian dressed in full armor, is a Christian, not so much, he's not really talking here about the, the picture of great exploits and mighty deeds and those kinds of things. He's really speaking about stability, protection, invulnerability, immovability, security that comes when you're safely nestled in the truth of the gospel. It makes you confident. It makes you happy. You might question that. I think, what, what are you talking about, happy? We have everything to be happy about if we're Christian. Because the most important thing about you is who you are in your relationship to the Father and your eternal security in that. How can we not be happy? It makes you stable. It helps you to live a holy life, the kind of life that others could imitate even. It gives you that dignity and resistance to the kind of weaknesses that would otherwise be true of you. Now, let me bring this to a final point then. If you begin with the knowledge of your own weakness, 
And now you can kind of begin to see the picture of how the gospel protects you at every level at which you might stumble or be wounded or fall as a Christian. The next thing then is that you must then know how to use this armor. Because what I've said so far perhaps has not been very practical in our understanding. Well, what does this look like in my day-to-day life? And this, friends, is I feel that my words come short on this point because I genuinely think that if, if we could grasp this, I could retire tomorrow, which has its own appeals, I'll admit to you. But I, I really believe that this is the biggest challenge, problem, issue that Christians face in their lives. This is it, friends. If you, if you understand this, you've, you've understood it. What is it? It is the gap that exists between your confession of the truth and the reality of what it means to be a believer in Christ and how you're living, thinking, and acting and the, the ways in which that, those things often contradict, the gap that exists between them. Let me spell this out. The gospel says that you are righteous. I've been explaining this to you. It says you're justified, that you are invulnerable to judgment because you have been made clean. The gap exists, though, when you struggle with paralyzing guilt and shame. Or when you go about life in such a way as to try and earn the pleasure of God or to justify your existence in this world. There's a hidden driver inside you. You don't know where it is or where it comes from, but you just cannot get off the treadmill. That's the gap that exists. It's called legalism. Well, the gospel says you are a co-heir with Christ. It's one of the first things we encountered when we began the letter to the Ephesians, that we're adopted into the family of God and you're co-heir with Christ, which means that all the wealth of heaven is yours. But... Most of us don't live like that's true. And the evidence is our desperate attempt to accumulate comforts and possessions and the stuff of this world and to put our security in these things and also the hesitancy we feel about being generous towards others. What does that say? It says that we don't really believe the gospel. There's a gap. There's a distance. The gospel says that you are safe, that your life is hidden with Christ in God, to borrow a phrase from the scripture. So that any harm that befalls you physically, you know that ultimately nothing can touch you. You belong to Jesus. But yet we live lives that are so often plagued by fears and worry and dread. The gospel says you're forgiven. A far greater debt than you can even comprehend because you're more evil than you know. And the Father has seen it all. And he's wiped it away. The gap exists, though, because you and I, we all struggle to extend the same grace, the same mercy to the people who've hurt us. And the temptation always when wronged is to react in anger, in judgment, resentment, in bitterness. And there may be to this day instances in your life of people who have hurt and harmed you and I don't want to take away from the reality of the hurt or the harm but you find it hard to let go there's a gap there friend the gospel says that you are loved 
Even if you're more wicked than you know, you're more loved than you could possibly comprehend or imagine. But maybe you're still unhappy. And when you're unhappy, you're vulnerable. I don't think the Christian should ever walk around with a plastic, gleeful smile. But to know you're loved is to have joy settle into the deepest part of your, your soul. And that changes a person. And when you're living with a sense of misery, there's a gap, isn't there, between what you know is true and your ability to feel and to live it out. Why does this gap exist? I think the simple answer is because faith has not yet become sight. The promise of the New Testament is that we will one day see Jesus face to face. Faith will become sight. You'll no longer need faith because you will set your eyes upon him and the sight of him will transform you instantly. The gap will be closed. This is how John describes it in 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's the gospel. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's the confession. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, there's a transformation that isn't yet completed in you. What you are becoming. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see Christ face to face, the gap between the frustrations of our daily struggles and failures and miseries and inadequacies, all of that will vanish in an instant because faith will become sight and knowing and seeing him face to face will complete the transformation in you. The gospel gap is closed. There's no longer any, any last remnant of doubt in you anymore. And John adds this. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he's pure. In other words, as you are pursuing Christ and the reality of truth and who he is and everything that the gospel means for you, that's how you grow. That's how the gap is closed and narrowed until the point at which you eventually will die and go to meet him. So the whole of the Christian life is this, friend. It's the straining, the desire to fully grasp what's real and let the reality shape you to be more like Christ. And insofar as you're not like him, this is where the contradictions exist between your confession and your ability to live out the truth. And they're in all of us, aren't they? We are walking, living, breathing contradictions, aren't we? What I'm speaking about here is appropriating the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean, of what this can look and feel like in us. I know a lady who, um, when she was a young woman, she's an old woman now, when she was a young woman, was given the diagnosis because of certain pain she was experiencing of a heart condition. I believe it was angina. And angina is a, a lack of blood flow to the heart and it causes pain that, that on that side of the body and also can be fatal. And so she made a decision as a young woman to not overexert herself, to live a sedentary life out of fear and self-protection. 
And so she lived for decades with this diagnosis hanging over her that really controlled her life. And as an older woman, in the course of having some more investigations, discovered that the diagnosis she'd received when young was entirely false. There was no problem with her heart. And here was the strange twist, that instead of that liberating her, she continued to live like the person who had the condition. And it seems to me that's a good picture of what happens in the Christian life. To be saved, the word salvation means made whole, healed. Christ has healed you. Sometimes we still live like we have the sickness, don't we? Or another example, we will from time to time, and maybe this is true of you, encounter those who have experienced incredible trauma and pain in life that is character and life-shaping through abusive experiences and horrible suffering or perhaps growing up in a war-torn environment. And if you take somebody from a place of abuse and suffering and the lack of safety and put them in an entirely safe place, you don't necessarily see the instant liberty and happiness that ought to accompany it. Because they've been shaped by the reality of the heaviness of what they've been through. They have post-traumatic stress. Sometimes until they die, very often actually. And it seems to me that there's something like that going on in the life of the Christian, that even though Scripture tells you you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, away from oppression and into life-giving freedom, away from the crushing, dark, accusing, heavy, wicked, poisonous atmosphere of Satan's rule and reign, and into the wonderful, refreshing, oxygen-filled, life-giving, love-saturated reality of knowing Christ. But sometimes you're carrying the wounds. Friend, my encouragement to you is that what it means to put on the armor of God is to engage in the, the lifelong pursuit of letting the reality of the gospel transform you from the inside out. Strengthen you. Give you the peace, the stability, the happiness, the security, the holiness that are part and parcel of this gospel. Think of what this means in your day-to-day life. How does the gospel penetrate every part and moment and dimension of your life? It starts, friends, from when you wake up. And you know that your first call as a Christian is to find a moment to come and talk to the Father. I know we don't all do it and we struggle with it. One of the reasons we struggle is because we don't know what to pray. Well, the first thing you pray, friend, is you pray the gospel. The gospel should shape and form your prayer life. What do I mean? I mean that you come before God on your knees. Whatever shame you're feeling, whatever unworthiness you're experiencing, whatever doubts you're facing, you begin to confess the truth. You say, Father, I thank you that I belong to you and that I can approach you because Christ's blood has made me clean and your Holy Spirit lives in me to enable me to pray. That's gospel-shaped prayer. You're kneading the gospel into your heart, internalizing it, even as you talk back to the Father. And then you go into your day of work. 
And instead of being driven by the expectations of others and the desire to please people or to make a success of yourself or to justify your existence, you're liberated from these things because you now understand that the only work that ever really mattered was the work Jesus accomplished for you. And everything else is the outpouring of worship. So that gospel-shaped work is saying to the Lord every day, here I am, I'm here to do your will, to serve and to love others, as I was speaking about a few weeks ago. So the gospel begins to shape how you think about and approach your work. And then you meet with temptation in your day. The flaming arrows are shot at you. But you begin to recall that Christ's promises are better. And so the gospel strengthens you and makes you resilient against the lies that would cause you to stumble. And maybe you struggle to remind yourself of these truths, but you have a friend who you talk to who's a fellow believer. You call them and say, I'm feeling tempted to do this, that, or the other. And they remind you of the better promises that are there for you in Christ. The gospel strengthens you. And then you experience a season in which you're going through low mood, inexplicable, or perhaps explicable. And you feel that every day you're waking up with a cloud over you, and it's, it's affecting you. It steals your joy, of course, but more than that, it shakes your faith. And the way the gospel can begin to breathe life and healing and freedom into this is by turning your, your, your darkness and your bleakness around into thanksgiving. Because the fact is that even if everything in your life was failing and everyone in your life was taken away, the one, the first essential, most important thing about you is that you belong to the Father. And so the Christian can always give thanks. And the act of giving thanks to God for the gospel begins to transform and and cause the, the, the flowers to bloom, as it were, again, and spring to begin to dawn in your heart. The gospel can free you. And as you're entering into rest and relaxation, instead of having the constant sense of never having accomplished enough, which robs you of rest, and then the desire to numb yourself in front of box sets so that you can just disconnect from all the stresses and anxieties of life, the gospel gives you true rest because it frees you from the need to be or do anything and establishes you on what Christ has already done for you, which is why he said, come to me, all you who weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So you can enjoy a Sabbath. You can enjoy your evenings. And you can breathe because Christ has accomplished all. And when you are hurt by others, Bitterly wounded even and rejected and betrayed. Instead of allowing these things to turn into the rancor and the poison which will hurt and harm you ultimately. You begin to recall that you were there in effect nailing Christ to the cross. Your sin put him on the cross. And his heart cried out for you. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's hard. I don't want to pretend like it's easy. But that's how forgiveness happens. When you remember, the gospel reminds you that you've received so much more. 
grace than you deserved. Now your life can be a constant outflowing of the same grace and mercy to others. And when you find that your thought life is afflicted, with dark imagination and thoughts and suggestions that seem to arise out of nowhere, you begin to realize part of what it means to be gospel-centered in your life is wanting to work the beauty of the gospel into every dimension of your mind. Through song, listening to songs that are fixed on Christ, feeding your soul on the right literature, the books and sermons that help nourish you. There's a deliberate aspect to this, isn't there? When Paul says, take up the armor of God, you can't be drifting passively through life. You must actively seek to imbibe the gospel. It takes discipline and and decision to do that. But slowly and surely it changes you. Another thing is that you find the right people to put around you. I think this is part of the necessity, by the way, of belonging to a church. Because it is hard to find spiritual friendship in this world. Finding friends is one thing, but friends don't always help you grow. Spiritual friendship is when you have those relationships in your life that strengthen you because they remind you of the goodness of Christ. And you can, br- you can open up your life transparently to them. Everyone here needs that. And I encourage you to build that. Build the disciplines of spiritual friendship. Friends, There are so many, almost infinite ways we could talk about this. But I want you to go away from here with hope. I want you to go away from here with hope that the weakness that you were aware of at the start when we talked about the reality that all of us have vulnerabilities and hindrances to us living a stable, godly Christian life, there is an answer to that weakness in the gospel. And for Paul, if he... If he had you alone in his counseling room, his pastor's office, and began to talk to you, he'd be able to show you, and I, I hope that something of what I said could show you what it means for you to take this gospel armor and for it to change you from the inside out. May God, by his grace, give you light to understand yourself and eyes to see the goodness of Jesus and that he is the answer.